This is the Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner, the podcast for anyone supporting a pregnant woman to achieve her dream birth. I'm Sally Ann Beresford, a doula, author and antenatal teacher, and throughout these episodes I will be sharing with you tried and tested tips that help you to ensure that any birth you attend is a positive experience. And welcome to this week's episode of the Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner. I'm chatting today with Emma Ashworth, who has written the AIMS book, The AIMS Guide to Your Rights in Pregnancy and Birth. And Emma has so much wisdom around human rights in childbirth. And I can't wait to get started and get into this, what can be sometimes a bit of a thorny subject. So let's say hello to you, Emma, and I'll ask you to introduce yourself. Hi, yes, so I'm Emma Ashworth and I'm a birthrights activist. I've been working as a birth activist or say working as a volunteering um, in one way or another for about 17 years and I've been a women's rights campaigner for about 30 years. I am the author of the AIMS Guide to Your Rights in Pregnancy and Birth and I have just retired as a names trustee. I've been a names trustee since it converted to a charity and was on the committee before that. I was the AIMS chair for a while and have loved my time there and um, still, of course, will be involved in doing things with AIMS. In fact, I'm just writing a new book for AIMS. My main work at the moment is focusing on getting more information about birthrights out there to people and information about what rights they have in pregnancy and birth and how they can assert those rights without having a fight because that's one of the things that's really important to me is that people are able to get what they want and what's right for them but without feeling as though they have to do it in a in an aggressive way or in a kind of fighty way it's it's more about using tools that are gentle and positive That's amazing. What made you become so passionate about standing up for human rights in pregnancy? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, I I genuinely have absolutely no idea that there's no specific trigger for it. I mean, there's lots of things that happened along the way, which is perhaps the most common thing, really, when people go into this kind of work. Um, So I have always had a strong interest in women's rights obviously which is why I've done that work for so long um my mum actually trained as a midwife when I was a teenager and I just found it fascinating so I was reading her midwifery books and following her training and I I was especially interested in some of the feminism-based texts that she had about the history of midwifery and obstetrics and how Um, how men had taken over from the wise women that had supported all births in the past. But at the time, I had no interest at all in having babies, or it took me a long time to want to have children of my own. So when I did have my first child, 
I, I suppose really all of that kind of converged into this interest in birth and I wanted to have a home birth and I was you know going through the process of trying to deal with arranging that and within a trust that was very anti-home birth. I had my mum supporting me which was amazing and I think I recognised how her support helped me to go through the birth that I had and then I just started thinking you know I, I don't know, this is just, it's just not right how things are going and I want to to make a change. And my mum had always said that. She said she decided to be a midwife on the day that she gave birth to me because she didn't want other women to go through what she went through. And I suppose seeing her getting to where she did and supporting people, she was certainly a big inspiration for me. And then it became reality with my own children. So it was just, it was a progressive thing really. And And somehow it's kind of a, it's just a part of who I am. And I'm sure that all the birth activists out there just feel exactly the same way. It's it's a part of who we are and I can't not do it. I've tried to yeah. stop, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, and it, it's, it's a shame because in some respects over the last sort of 20 years that I've been involved, lots of things have moved forward, but some have moved backwards. So it's just a case of trying to change the system, but change the way that women and birthing people think about what they should have in order to stand up for themselves because that's really all we can do at this stage I think yeah I agree yeah let's start then so you're pregnant you're in a situation where your your pregnancy is sailing along but you're invited to go for a regular checkup or a scan and they decide that there might be a concern. Maybe your baby's measuring too big. Maybe your baby is measuring too small. Maybe you have a high BMI. But let's just say you ticked a box. You're you're in an appointment where you tick a box and all of a sudden you're expected to attend more scans, more appointments, be offered different things. Mm-hmm. During those meetings, we very rarely hear them as conversations. What should a pregnant woman or person expect to hear when she's in a situation where she's having a conversation with a midwife or a doctor? Well, it's a really, really good way of wording it. You're absolutely right. They're often not seen as conversations. They're not seen as discussions. And a lot of this comes back to the fact that they're they're not. They're not they're not discussions. It's not a case of, um, you know, these are the things we're looking at and these are the things that might be happening. And it's, you know, this is a chance of it happening or not happening. And these are the things that we're thinking about whether you know you might like to accept and these are the benefits of it and these are the risks of it and these are the benefits and risks of not doing it and what do you think which way forward would you like this is not what happens it is what is obliged to happen by law but it isn't what happens there's loads of reasons why time being a big thing if a healthcare provider, midwife, doctor or anybody else can simply get a person um, into the system going along the conveyor belt and not having any kind of discussion about it. It's quicker, it's easier, it's smoother. It means they can probably go home on time or they probably can't go home on time because they're so overstretched, but they might at least get home several hours after they were supposed to finish their shift. You get somebody coming in and asking questions and that throws all of that off. And It's really important for us to remember that we can be really empathic about that and we can be really understanding about that and we can be kind and thoughtful about the fact that that happens, but it is not our responsibility. And so what I would say to people if they're feeling 
that they're being dragged along without actually having any input in it is to simply say what they are experiencing. That's great. Thank you for that information. However, I feel as though you're just telling me what you think I should do and not really talking me through what we could be looking at, what options there are, what's really going on for me as opposed to perhaps um, a guideline that would potentially benefit one person in 200 or something like that. So just say what's going on and say how you feel about what is happening and ask them to just go back and go over things with you. There is that phrase, no decision about me without me, which is, uh, I, I don't even like that at all because it's remembering that the person who is accessing the healthcare is the person who makes the decision. And shared decision-making is another one of those. This is all leading into this kind of scenario is it's not shared decision-making. It's us that make the decision. It's not anybody else. It's not shared. So yeah, that's what I would say is sit and think about how you feel and then talk about it and then ask them to actually sit and talk through what you want them to talk through. Why is there so little, like there's so little evidence-based information out there, isn't there? But we don't know that. We're not aware that some of the things that we're told in pregnancy is actually not relevant to us at all. And it's not it's not evidence based. And worse than that, some of the things that we're told um, we're actually sometimes being put into what are effectively trials, um, trying to gather evidence without being told that that's the case. Um, And so looking at the the whole big baby thing, there is the big baby trial that is being undertaken at the moment to see whether inducing babies earlier can reduce the rate of shoulder dystocia. (laughs) So we're often not told that that's actually what's happening is they're trying to gather that evidence. And so why do we not have all of this evidence? Well, I mean, there is, of course, vast amounts of research that is out there. But how does that get pulled together? How does that get pulled together in a way that we can then interpret and understand? Because we can have research on a particular topic and some of it has completely opposite conclusions. So the same piece of research looking at the same thing. So it's really, really difficult. And then there is complete areas around maternity that don't have any evidence at all. What happens is, is that guidelines are drawn up by hospitals and by other organisations. And where there are gaps in the evidence, it's filled with expert opinion. And where the evidence is contradictory, the experts try and work out between them, which seems to be the most valid situation. And it's not always right. It's not going to be right for everybody at all anyway. So if a guideline is drawn up, that's going to be applied to everybody. So you have the right to get the information to to help you to try and work out how this applies to you personally. So you have the right to get a copy of the guideline that the hospital is referring to. It might be the hospital guideline. It might be a NICE guideline. It might be RCOG, Royal College of Ops and Gynae, or it might be, you know, a combination of those. It might be the doctor personal opinion. It might be some evidence that they've read. Bearing in mind that you get a piece of evidence, you get a piece of research, and that's only one snapshot, one little picture, and you could have another piece of research that says something different on the same topic. So if they just give you this research, that's not necessarily evidence in of itself either. (laughs) But you have the right to get all of this, and you have the right to have the time to spend with the doctor or midwife to go through it as well, even if they're struggling for time. It doesn't mean you'll have the time in that appointment. You have the right to have another appointment and go through these so you understand the information that they're giving you as best as as they can possibly explain it to to work out what is relevant to you 
that's really helpful to hear, isn't it? Because often um, when something is recommended to you, it's put across as a fait accompli, like you don't really have any reason to question why I'm suggesting that we now get your baby out and do an induction because your baby isn't blah, blah, blah. But actually, when you do question, sometimes you're told that you are doing something bad or something wrong and that your baby could die and that you, you know, we call it pulling the dead baby card, don't we? The idea that if you even doubted a recommendation or a suggestion on your head, be it. Um, I always say, if you sit opposite a consultant and these are the words that come out of their mouths, smile sweetly and run for the hills and then go and speak to somebody on the antenatal reception desk and say, can I see a different doctor? Can you make an appointment for a different one? Because at the end of the day, you know, you need to be sat opposite someone who is willing to take the time to discuss a different preference for you that you might prefer to go down another route. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some important things to know there. So as you say, you can simply leave the room. You can wait to the end of the consultation if you want to. If you don't feel that this is somebody who is making you feel safe, then you have absolutely no obligation to continue under that person's care. So you can either wait till the end of the consultation um, or you can leave early if you wish. Um, And you can, as you say, simply go and ask to be referred to a different doctor or a different midwife. You absolutely have the right to do that. And I would encourage people to do that because unless you feel as though you're being told the appropriate information for you, how can you be safe under that practitioner? So you have the right to do that. You have the right to not have these conversations if you don't want to. You have the right to point out to this doctor or midwife that what they've actually said is pretty disturbing and and realistically how likely is this to apply to to me personally. You also have the right to um, ask that doctor or midwife to write down what they just said or take a pen and paper and write it down yourself and say to them, okay, so, you know, you've just made a note of what they've said. So you say, okay, um, Mr. or Mrs. Doctor or midwife, um, you have just told me that my baby is on the 10th centile and is therefore at very high risk of stillbirth if I don't go for an induction today. Is that exactly what you meant to say? And if so, could you just sign underneath to say that's what you meant to say? (laughs) Because we need to be holding them accountable for some of these things. You can write this down. You can ask them to put their name to it. You can also record them. So you have the right to record these consultations. So let's talk about that briefly. You have the right to record the consultations and you do not have to tell them that you're recording it. You can do so without telling them. That is perfectly legal. However, there is a huge amount of value in telling them that you're recording the conversation, which is that they tend to be much more careful about what they say. They tend to be much more careful about the language they use and the words they use if they're going to have it on tape. So those are some of the things you can do to try and deal with those scenarios. But as you say, you can just simply leave the room if you if you wish to. Or just sit there until it's finished and then go and speak to somebody else. Mm. I'd be interested to just ask you regarding the recording. What if they declined to be recorded? Is that something they can say no to? No, not legally. Um, Of course, many will. A lot of them don't like to be recorded. But the, the law is very clear, which is that there is no law that protects a midwife or doctor from being recorded. So they have no right 
to stop you from recording. And if they decline care based on the fact that you want to record, that is going against their duty of care under their registrar as a, a midwife or a doctor. So they are not allowed to decline you care. And so the simple answer to it is that, um, you know, you can say to them um, that if you're getting into this discussion about recording, you know, I appreciate that you might feel that this is challenging for you, but I really need to record this because I want to listen to it afterwards and listen to your advice again and think it through and, and talk to my partner about it and have some time to really let anything sink in. You know, you can explain it like that. You don't need to say because I want to catch you out saying something terrible. You know, this is and for the most part, that's not what it is. We remember so little from a consultation, especially if something difficult, or challenging or worrying comes up. So it's just a case of saying, I just want to be able to listen to it afterwards so I can think about your advice again and, and go through it with somebody else especially during COVID when we're often there on our own. It's, you know, absolutely, it's so valuable to record it under all circumstances. So it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. If they say, no, I'm not going to allow you to do it, then you can simply say, well, actually, it's, it is my legal right to do that. And it is valuable to me. And so, you know, I, I'd, I'd really love it if you'd support me with that. If they say I'm not going to have the consultation with you, then I would say that's a flag for somebody who is not a safe practitioner. However, if you really want that consultation, for example, you know, it's been really tricky to get to the consultation and it's hard to get back to a different one, then you can go down the route of saying, well, actually, you have a duty of care to offer me this consultation. So, you know, let's move forward. Ultimately, they may still decline. And then it's going to be up to you whether you feel that you're going to go ahead and not record it, record it surreptitiously or simply not have the consultation. And then what you can do afterwards, you can make a complaint about that and you can. I mean, it's a serious thing to, to refuse to have a consultation. That is not an insignificant thing at all. And if something were to go wrong that could have been picked up during that consultation, then that potentially could be. Um, a legal situation against that practitioner as well so it's it's a very serious thing for them to decline care mm. yeah that's really good to know thank you um whilst we were on the subject of being in the room and being offered things I mean induction rates are going through the roof yeah um and for every single reason you can think of like there's so many reasons it, it, I can't think of them all but Whatever the reason, if you are being told you have to have an induction, what kind of questions should you ask in order to make sure this is the right decision for you? Well, the first thing I would start with is that phrase, you know, you have to have an induction. And again, and I know that it's kind of a repetitive thing, but it is such an important thing is, is somebody who's telling you you have to do something? Is that somebody who is safe? Is that somebody who is honest with you? And when I say safe, I mean, are they giving you the right information for you personally? And if they're not, then that's not necessarily safe for you because an induction is a, is a very intrusive intervention. For example, we wouldn't turn up somewhere and have a nurse or a doctor say to us, oh, your blood sugar is very high. I'm going to put you on insulin without thinking about it, you know, you would actually be wanting to have far more information about understanding, you know, is the, do I really have diabetes? You want to be going through this information and, and understanding it better. You wouldn't just take a hormone into your body just because somebody has just told you you're just going to have to do it. 
without going through you know proper consultations proper tests all this sort of thing and, and an induction is doing not a dissimilar thing it's actually putting in a really powerful really powerful hormone into our bodies a hormone that although it is chemically equivalent to the, the hormone that our bodies make oxytocin it, it acts on our body very very differently to when our bodies make it and it can interfere with our bodies well it does interfere with our body's natural oxytocin and natural hormone system um, we know that it has very significant side effects, just as taking a whole load of insulin would have very significant side effects if it wasn't something necessary for our body. It can also be incredibly valuable, just as insulin can be incredibly valuable. Sometimes inductions are life-saving. So not underestimating how powerful an intervention induction is. So if somebody says to us, you have to have an induction, then are they really a safe person? Are they really thinking through the real deep, important side effects of induction and how that might affect us? Or are they just saying, okay, let's just get this baby out and all the rest of it doesn't matter because legally, going into looking at the kind of the malpractice scenarios, if they have done something, they are less likely to get sued than if they don't do something, even if the doing something causes harm. If they just follow the regular guidelines for that intervention and there is a, a bad reaction, side effect or harm, they're far less likely to get sued. So really what we need to be looking at is, is that person safe? And are they giving us the information that we need to make an informed decision? And if they're telling us we have to be induced, what we want to do is have a conversation about why. Why is it being offered? What are the benefits of my baby being born before they're ready to be born? What could this do to resolve the particular issue that you're talking about? What's the chances of it resolving that particular issue? So let's say we're talking about an issue of a big baby, a huge thing at the moment about big babies being induced early. The information on this is really quite complicated. So they're trying to reduce the numbers of babies that experience a shoulder dystocia or getting stuck as they're born. So they are trying to work out which babies are bigger. Um, because there's a slightly higher chance of a bigger baby getting stuck than a smaller baby. It's very difficult, as many of your listeners will know, to, to work out which babies are bigger before they're born. So we don't even know if the, if the growth scans are accurate. Most shoulder dystocias are resolved without a problem. So what we don't know is whether reducing the number of shoulder dystocias also reduces the number of shoulder dystocias which cause harm. So it's quite a complex issue. And all of this should be explained to you. The potential benefits, because there might not even be a benefit, the potential risks, the potential harm from the intervention, the pros and cons of waiting. And if none of that's happening, then I would definitely be looking to see if you could speak to somebody who would give you that information. One of the things that I feel disappointed in is the fact that when an induction is offered, they don't talk about how many days it can take. They don't talk about how your baby can come out really quite swollen after many days of having fluids pumped into them, which can actually make it worse. They don't talk about the restrictions, not being able to move. And you don't always feel well supported because often you're in there alone. Your partner is sent away, sent home overnight. You know, when you become exhausted in these circumstances, it's often easy to just say, okay, 
I'd like an epidural now, please. And therefore you're then strapped to the bed, strapped to a permanent monitor. These things are not discussed. And that is the hardest part for me is that, you know, you've got somebody making a recommendation over here in a in a consultant's room in an antenatal clinic. And that is a person you will never, ever set eyes on again. They won't come near your birth. They don't know how busy the maternity ward is. They don't know that you don't always get your induction straight away. It could be a day or two before it's even began. They don't realise or see the long-term effects of what happens when you have uh, an episiotomy because you couldn't get your baby out or a cesarean section. They don't know how going home after having had major abdominal surgery affects you in the bonding process. And I feel like that's the part that is such a shame. Like if only somebody had like a checklist of all of the things to say, well, okay, this is a balance here, like everything in life. There is a balance between, you know, this risk and that risk. So yes, your baby is growing bigger than we might have preferred. You know, if you choose to have an induction, which is our recommendation to you, you will need to be aware of all these other things. I just wish that, you know, these were much more transparent and given to somebody because then they'd say, well, no, I was expecting it to take four days. I was expecting to end up being monitored for hours on end and I wouldn't be able to mobilize. That's not what I practiced in pregnancy yoga, but I totally understand that's a decision I'm making because that's how I want to move forward with my pregnancy is to actually agree to the induction. I just feel like that's the hardest part. Well, in fact, the law the law says very clearly that this should be shared. It's really, really clear that midwives and doctors are obliged to offer to share this information with us because this is part of our decision-making process. I do just want to pick up on what you were saying there, of course, about the fact that if we um, have an induction and, uh, yes, more likely to have an epidural because the induction process can be more painful and more drawn out, and we will be strongly encouraged, if not told we have to, have continuous monitoring, and that often does lead to us being stuck on the bed. All of those things are still our choice. So we can have an induction without having continuous monitoring, or we can have continuous monitoring and still be up and off the bed. So even if we're told we have to lie down, even if we're told we have to stay still, we don't. This is something that um, I, I look back on my first birth and I had continuous monitoring. I ended up not having a home birth. And I was in hospital and I was having continuous monitoring. And as is the case with continuous monitoring straps, they kept slipping. They kept losing his heart rate. So for hours, my mum stood holding the little monitor straps in place while I was up and mobile for hours. And that was because she said to the midwife, no, she doesn't have to be laying on the bed. Of course she doesn't. You know, come on, let's get you up. (laughs) she got me into a good position and I was just leaning over things and walking around and she held those in place now of course birth partners can do this birth partners can hold those straps in place and make sure that their partner is able physically to get up because they can support them they can hold them they can go into these different positions that they've tried and I I really find it hard to find the wording for this because people say so often to me, am I allowed to do that? It's your body. You can do what you want with it. 
you know, if, if you take anything away from listening to this podcast today, it is that you are allowed to do whatever you want with your body. And that is the end of it. Because if you want to get up off that bed, what are they going to do? Throw you in jail. It's not up to them. They don't have the right to make you lie on the bed any more than you have the right to make them lie on the bed. I often say you have the same right to put your fingers in the vagina or other body orifice of your midwife or doctor as they do to put theirs in yours. You have exactly the same right. In other words, none, no rights whatsoever to put your fingers in somebody else's body. And they don't have the right to do it to you either because it's your body and nobody else's. And as you can tell, I'm quite passionate about this because <laughs> this is perhaps going back to the beginning. You said, you know, what, what makes me do this? This is this concept that anybody could do something to our bodies without our consent and that we don't have the right to decide whether to stand up and walk around or lay down on the bed drives me to, it, it just, yeah, I, I don't even have the words to tell you how distressing I find it listening to stories of people saying they, they were told that they had to do this, told that they couldn't do that, and how awful it was for them. You know, I know that every single person who has worked as a birth worker or birth activist will totally hear in their heart what I'm saying. So that's what I want to say is, look at your body, you decide whether you're going to get up and walk around. Having said that, the system oppresses us so much that it's very, very hard in the moment to do that. And that's where birth partners can be so amazing. And also, if you are in a situation of having an epidural, it's really, really hard to move around. <laughs> Most epidurals mean you physically can't. There are epidurals that do give you some movement. Um, and of course, in that scenario, then you can, again, your birth partner can be um, absolutely amazing here if they're already up to speed on different positions to get into with epidurals, perhaps using a peanut ball or, you know, to raise your leg or perhaps having lots of pillows to help you to get into a, a kneeling position. Some of these can really make a difference. And if the midwife is saying to you, no, you just have to be lying on your back, please remember that you do not. At the very least, at the very least, you might find it better to lay on your side at the very minimum. So, yeah, that's really um, my little <laughs> passionate outburst, because I, I, I think this is really what it all fundamentally comes down to, isn't it? Is that we cannot be told what to do. And if you know, if you've learned in your antenatal sessions that actually it is better for your body to be up and moving around, then it's perfectly fine. Try and find that confidence to say, why is it that you want me to lie down? What benefit is there to me? Not to you, not to the system. What benefit is there to me? And this, again, is where birth partners can be so powerful because if we're in pain, if we're feeling so vulnerable, they can be the ones that are asking these questions for us. But they also need to have a little bit of background knowledge. So I would urge all the birth partners out there to be, to be reading Sally Ann's book, of course, and going to antenatal classes and reading all the stuff and talking to the people and, and learning all of this as much as they possibly can. So they're more confident in supporting their partner in the moment. Mm, absolutely. Um, another thing that came up for me just then was that if you did have a midwife who was insisting that you lay down or adopted a certain position because it was easier for her or him, go and get a different midwife. 
go and tell them you would like them to send in someone else. And as awkward as that might feel in that moment, you won't set eyes on that person again. So, you know, they will be probably if they're annoyed by you and you're feeling annoyed by them, they'll probably be equally as glad not to be working (laughs) with you and to be assigned to a different person. So if you are in a situation where you do have a stroppy kind of discussion with someone because you're not complying to what suits them more, change them. Yes, you absolutely have the right to change your midwife in labour. Even if you're at a home, even if you're birthing at home, you do not have to have that midwife staying in your home. Um, of course, it can be a little bit challenging for um, if they're very short staffed. And it may well be that there is not another midwife to swap with if you're at home. Um, so that is a decision you'd have to make. But you certainly do not have to host that person in your home if you're not feeling comfortable with having them there. I think the other things I'm going to just pick up on there are, is it being stroppy? Um, because we feel it is. Lots of people say, oh, I don't I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to be stroppy. I don't want to be difficult. Um, there is no other life changing part of our lives that we wouldn't be putting our foot down. You know, when we get married, um, no, we, we we don't want the blue streamers. Thank you, because we've actually ordered them in purple and um, no, the blue's not good enough. You know, why is it that we'd argue the colours at our wedding more than we'd argue whether or not we can stand up when we're giving birth? These sorts of things can be life changing, whether we assert ourselves during our birth because they can make the difference between the birth going well and not and also psychologically the sense of remaining in control of what's happening to us and our body is so important to our sense of self and yes it can be very difficult because when you're vulnerable it can be very very difficult to assert our own rights our own feelings and again that's where birth partners can really help now birth partners cannot talk for us in the sense that they're not allowed to make decisions for us but if if we've made it clear that we want something or don't want something then they can be very clear about that and and represent us in that way Mm. so for example if you have decided that you don't want to have vaginal exams either right now or at all and you have the right to do that then you can stay to the midwife if that's what you said or you can have it in your birth plan and then your birth partner can reassert that and just say, look, she has stated or they have stated that this is not what's right for them. So the birth partner has the right to do that for you. They just don't have the right to make decisions for you that you haven't already stated yourself. Mm. That's good to know. So let's go back to the home birth thing, because if you want a home birth, what are your rights? Well, the first thing is, that under a a judgment from the European Court of Human Rights, which the UK is still under, despite the fact that uh, we had Brexit, there was a judgment made that stated that everybody who lives in countries that come under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights has the right to a home birth. That is a, a very straightforward, very clear right. So we don't have to ask permission. We don't have to be given permission. We don't have to be signed off for it. We can give birth at home if we want to. That's the first part of the rights. The second part of the rights comes down to what is our right to be attended by a midwife at home. 
Another judgment by the European Court of Human Rights, unfortunately, said that we don't have the right to be attended at home under that court. It doesn't mean that there aren't other rights. So unfortunately, that court didn't give us that right. However, in the UK, every country of the UK has its own right to be attended at home. It really comes under NHS guidance. And so we have the right to be attended at home. We have the right to have a home birth. um, And we do not need, as I say, to be signed off, approved, authorised or any of that business for it. And that actually is another important thing, because um, it also means that we have the right to birth at home without an attendant. Free birth is completely legal in the UK. And yes, your partner or anybody else you like, with some limitations, which I'll say in a second, can attend you at that birth perfectly legally without any issue of falling under the law, which stops people from attending this as women in birth. The law is intended to stop people from pretending to be a midwife or pretending to be a doctor. And so it doesn't stop you having your doula there or having your birth partner there or your mum there. Ironically, the only people who can't attend you are midwives who don't have insurance to attend you. So, yeah, go figure on that one. So if you are in a situation whereby you plan a home birth, You don't have to get anyone's permission to do so. You don't have to have the doctor sign you off, which is one of the things that you put on your amazing Mm -hmm. Instagram feed. So if anyone hasn't already followed Emma, it is amazing. We'll put the links in the show notes. But they don't have to attend you if they've got no one to send. Is that correct? No, it's more that if they've got no one to send, they've got no one to send. So. You know, they can't, they they literally can't magic a midwife out of nowhere. And so, this is a really challenging situation. So, before COVID, there was a chronic shortage of midwives, and there had been for decades. However, most home births were able to be attended. Not all, certainly, the home birth services were. Um, were closed not infrequently before COVID but um, you know on the whole you had a good chance of being able to be supported at home by a midwife. What's happened with COVID is that we've had this you know 18 months years of midwives obviously becoming ill, chronic staff shortages, midwives having to isolate and the situation that we're in now is that the horrific pressure and stress that the midwifery service has been under over COVID has led many midwives to leave the service. There's many midwives who are off on long-term sick with long COVID, or of course, other things as well. And of course, midwives is going through exactly the same thing as everybody else, which is that if they have other medical conditions, they're also struggling to get treatment for that themselves. So there is a high level of sick um, just for other reasons, because the NHS is struggling to support them. So we really are in an apps. I mean, we talk about crises in the NHS and we talk about how bad things are getting. But I have never, ever seen a midwifery crisis like this. Not ever. It's terrible. And I feel so deeply for the midwives and for the doctors who are still battling on. And I feel so deeply for those who have left because they have just found it all too much. And my heart goes out to all of them. 
And it leaves us in a situation as birthing women and people where we genuinely don't have a midwifery service, which is always safe. And it's a terrible situation to be in. So whether or not we have the right to something, you know, where do rights come from? Rights are things that we give to each other. Rights that there is no inherent born rights to anything, to food, to home, to anything. It's just what we give to each other as a society. And sometimes right now we are in a situation where there just are not enough midwives. Now, there are things that trusts are not doing, which they absolutely should do, and they are obliged to do. For example, take on independent midwives as support for the midwifery service. Even worse, some trusts are taking on independent midwives on the most ridiculous contracts. They are offering them peanuts for being on call and just terribly small amounts of money and just utterly unlivable on. And then claiming that they're taking on independent midwives to cover their shortages. And it's just not true. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. And it's not legal. So this is where we have a situation where activists need to be really focusing on. We can't leave it all to the pregnant women and people because we we just need to be a team and pull together. And we need to be focusing on encouraging our maternity units to be taking on independent midwives on proper contracts with proper amounts of money. We need to be working on ways that um, they can be supported through work, you know, volunteering with our MVPs, understanding what's happening and um, offering them support. And it is a team effort, if you like, but ultimately, if they're not there, they're not there. And there isn't an answer to that other than the midwifery service is obliged to do everything they can to keep things going. So I just want it to be clear that in the old days, especially as a doula, if I had a client who said, I'm on the phone to the midwife and they're saying we've got to come in. In the old days, it was easy to say, just tell them you're not coming in and they will send someone. But actually in current circumstances, they may not have someone to send. So if you do decide to stay home, you may be expected to call for an ambulance instead of a midwife. Yes. And and that is something that, I mean, it has always been the case that sometimes, very rarely, they couldn't find somebody, very rarely. But as you say, it used to be the case that they um, almost certainly would. And I would still very much go down the same route of saying exactly the same things. You know, if you're not prepared to go to hospital, don't go to hospital, stay at home and tell them that's what you're doing. Mm. And to be fair, a lot of the time they are still finding midwives. So it is important to be that person that says I'm not moving because if you say that, they usually will make that extra effort Mm. so it is really worth still doing that but it's also important to know that an ambulance service is not is not a midwifery service they're not trained in midwifery Mm. um they are trained in some emergency some real emergency midwifery things but very few and most of the time the service is simply there to get you to hospital They're not an alternative midwifery service. And so if you are thinking that that might be a route to go down, it's very important to, that you do the research into what the ambulance service can offer you and decide whether that's enough for you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'd still certainly be saying. Um, yeah, I agree. You. It's it's easy for me to say that because chances are if I am with a client, I'm there as well. So if you're in a situation where it's just you and the birthing person and you're at the end of the phone as the birth partner, 
What I would encourage you to remember is that physiological birth with no interventions typically is a very safe and easy event. If the baby's coming quickly, there are no problems. So breathe and relax and just, you know, go with the flow. But yeah, I don't want this to be a scary discussion. However, I do honestly think that sticking to you again, staying at home, not necessarily putting that person in the car where you might have the baby in the car on the side of the road, weighing up the fact that it is your right to continue to have your birth at home, regardless of their staffing issues. Yep. Yep, absolutely. It, It really is. And so it's your right. You have the right to birth at home full stop that's so that is very straightforward so if they start telling you you have to come in it's it's illegal to stay at home or it's illegal for your partner to be with you that's just simply untrue mm. and if they are unable to send a midwife that is always just going to be down to your decision as to how comfortable you feel with that but you have the right to do it and that's therefore your decision mm. let's talk a little bit about rights you don't have because If you do arrive at the hospital or midwife-led unit, and let's say they closed the MLU, so you're booked to go to the local midwife-led unit, and on the day you go into labour, it's shut. Is there anything you can do? If the midwife-led unit is shut, then it's shut. (laughs) Unless you can persuade them to get some midwives to reopen it, which is always worth talking about. It's always worth having that discussion. But if the if the unit is shut, it's, it's shut. It's the same as if sometimes the obstetric unit will shut and you'll be re-diverted to another hospital. But with a midwife-led unit, you are more likely to have the chance of being able to say to them, you know, I really want to go there. What can we do about finding a midwife? But the chances are, if it's shut, it's shut. Mm. But is it the, the phrase of what rights do we not have Well, again, coming back to the fact that rights are things that we give to each other. And therefore, um, you know, rights come from lots of different things. And we have the right, we have we have certain rights that are very clear legal rights. For example, the right to not have our bodies touched or probed or have medications put into them without our consent is a very strong legal right. But We have other rights as well. So, for instance, we have the right to appropriate pain relief. So do we have the right to access a pool? Let's say that the midwife blood unit is closed. And so we've decided that we're going to go and birth on the obstetric unit instead. And we're asking to use the pool. And they're saying, no, not, you know, it's not so much the norm in the obstetric unit. And we're not going to let you use it. Well, what are the alternatives? You have the right to have pain relief so you've got a few alternatives you've got epidural you've got gas and air you've got the opiates so what you can say to them is okay so what you're saying to me is that I can have a needle in my spine and um, drugs pumped into that mean that I can't feel my legs and that affect my labor by affecting my pelvic floor and being not being able to move or I could have a bath a big bath Looking at the opiates, very common, very commonly given during birth, dimorphine, which is medical grade heroin. Okay, so you're telling me that I can have a shot of heroin during my labor, but I can't have a bath. 
Now, if two or three weeks earlier, you'd said to your midwife, oh, I've had such a hard day. I'm feeling really exhausted. I don't know whether to have some heroin or take a bath. What do you think? (laughs) What's your midwife going to say to you? And quite frankly, what's she going to say to social services? Yeah. So when it comes to labour, why is it any different? So when it comes to things that are not kind of legal rights to have, there are still ways that you can negotiate them. And you can support that negotiation with rights that you do have. You have the right to appropriate pain relief. They have a duty of care to make sure that you receive the care that you need. And if the care that you need is pain relief, you have the right to that. Do you see how I mean how that kind of works? Yeah. And so you can take those and then you can say, so these are my rights. And then I'm just going to pop on that little bit of logic and then go from there. Because the, the whole birth pool thing is one of those things I, I always find absolutely astonishing that they will put giving you a shot of heroin, giving you some opiates, giving you some gas and air, which itself has side effects, but not letting you get into a bath. Mad, mad. Yeah, it really is. What about asking for a C-section? So C-sections, if you want to have a cesarean and you don't have what they would class as a medical need for one, Um, You want to be looking at the NICE guidelines on on cesarean section, and we can add the link to that um, afterwards. The NICE guidelines on cesarean section have a section on maternal request for cesareans. And what it says is that if somebody asks you for a cesarean because they're afraid of going through birth, that you can refer them for a a specific kind of counselling If having had that kind of counselling, the person still says that a vaginal birth is unacceptable to them, then go ahead and book the cesarean. That's specifically talking about people with tocophobia, fear of childbirth. But it doesn't have to be a tocophobia. It could be other reasons. And and if, if a person wants to have a cesarean, then they should be able to have one. That's what the NICE guideline says. If a surgeon isn't willing to do the cesarean, they should refer that person to somebody who is willing to do it. So that's where the right comes. You know, if it's very difficult for hospitals to cut, to go against the NICE guidelines. It's not a legal right, but rights come in all shapes and sizes and we go with what we've got. Mm. We have, um, well, certainly where I live, there's five or six different hospitals and within each hospital, there's many, many different um, consultant obstetricians. So if you do sit in front of one and they say, oh, no, I'm really sorry, that's not an option. Then you, again, smile, say, OK, no problem. And then you go out and you say to the midwife or your community midwife, I want your support in finding an obstetrician that is prepared to help me achieve the birth that I want to achieve, which might be a cesarean section. And if not, you can change your hospital. So, you know, yes. go, go and find someone who will, if that's important to you. And that goes for any type of birth, doesn't it, really? But Absolutely. And I think the thing about that is, is that the obstetricians tend to also know who's prepared to do it and who's not. Because you can understand it from their point of view is that they are being asked to perform a, an operation with risks to, to you and therefore to them in terms of their career. And, you know, we don't have the right to force somebody to put a scalpel to our bodies, but we do have the right to get care that's appropriate to us. So there's kind of conflicting things that are going on there. 
So what we can do is we can say to the obstetrician themselves, who of your colleagues should I speak to? Some of them will just not be helpful, but many times they will. They'll just say, look, it's really, I really feel uncomfortable with doing cesareans without there being a medical reason or what I consider to be a medical reason. But my colleague such and such is much more open to it. It's something that many obstetricians are very happy to support you with finding somebody that, that does. So if they're not, sometimes they might be quite stroppy about it and then do exactly what you said, Sally, and switch hospitals if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that many people don't realise is that they can also decline medications. So our bodies are our own to make decisions about for ourselves. So we can decline interventions medications any kind of surgeries all of these things are an offer somebody says to us and you know a a medical person says to us I think this will be of benefit to you they are also obliged to talk about the um, risks and the benefits and risks of doing something different or doing nothing and then the decision is ours to make so it's exactly the same whether it's a, a medication an intervention a surgery and it doesn't change because we're pregnant The baby, the unborn baby, has no legal rights. And the only person who can make decisions about their body and their unborn baby's body is the pregnant woman or person. Mm. And that applies across the board to all kinds of interventions. Mm. I think sometimes people don't know what they're being given. Like in a cesarean section, for example, I've had clients who uh, had no idea that they were given antibiotics, had no idea when they suffered symptoms from those antibiotics, when I said to them, mm. well, that's because you've had antibiotics. They're like, I haven't. I'm like, mm. no, you have, because you were given it during the C-section. They were like, well, nobody told me that. You know, mm. also making sure before anything is given to you, say, I would really like you to let me know exactly what you're proposing to give, you know, yeah. making sure that you're aware. I know we're jumping slightly, but that also for me is very important with regards to vaginal examinations, because often when a woman consents to a vaginal examination, she doesn't consent to anything else. And sometimes when a vaginal examination is performed, the midwife may decide without consent to do a stretch and sweep at the same time. (laughs) And it's only afterwards that the woman may have been told that that's what the midwife did. So Mm -hmm. it's equally as important to say, can I just check? Yes, I do consent to you doing that, but please ask my permission if you think there may be a reason to do something else. Okay, let me be really clear. If a midwife does a consented vaginal examination and during that vaginal examination does a stretch and sweep without consent, she or he is actually performing criminal assault and battery. Yeah. It is very illegal. It cannot be done without consent. They are two specifically different interventions. Most people don't know that. Um, and most midwives and doctors don't know that. You know, they, they're not knowingly breaking the law. They're not knowingly committing a criminal act. In their head, they're doing something that they think is beneficial. And this is where um, a whole lot of obstetric violence stuff gets very, very difficult. The um, feminist theory on obstetric violence can, and I don't want to go off 
backtrack too much, but all of this is so interrelated, is that these things that can be very often experienced as a, a distressing or traumatic act in the same way as any form of violence is usually experienced as a distressing or traumatic act is encompassed in this concept of being cared for. And so women and people can come out of birth feeling very confused because they don't know why they feel violated. They don't know why they feel traumatized because they were just being looked after. But that's why obstetric violence is such a difficult concept, because it's not an act of somebody going out there to try and beat somebody up. It's not an act of somebody out there going out there trying to hurt somebody. In fact, it's completely the opposite most of the time. But the simple fact is that that is still the effect of what they're doing. And so obtaining consent is always legally, morally, ethically, and as a way to reduce the chance of trauma, necessary. And consent doesn't just mean, I'm just going to do a vaginal exam, okay. <laughs> it means talking through what they're suggesting that they offer, the benefits of it, the risks of it, the reasons they're offering it, what they may gain from it, what you as the pregnant or birthing woman or person may gain from it, and then waiting for your decision. Mm. So you are not giving consent in law, proper informed consent, if they just say, I'm just going to see how dilated you are because that's not giving you the information to make the decision as to whether to give consent or not. Mm. Still less if they then do something else while they're in there. Now, when it comes to something like a cesarean, it is not legally expected for the doctor to have a detailed list of all the things that they may do during that surgery, during that birth. But you absolutely have the right to have that information. So if you want to know what's involved in it, then you just ask them to write it down and then they will tell you all of the steps that they will take during a normal, straightforward cesarean. Now, if they're going to be doing something else, let's say something is going wrong and they need to be doing other things, they should be talking you through that. If you're having a cesarean, you still have the right to be told what's happening and to have the right to say no. And it's exactly the same in a, in a vaginal birth. You still have the right to be told, okay, we, we think we should do an episiotomy and have that conversation as to why. And if you don't have time for the conversation, if you say no, they cannot do it. So it might be a, considered to be an you know, extreme emergency situation. If you say no, they still can't do it. If there is no time to go through it, there is st you still can say no and they can't do it. In almost all cases, there is time to very quickly to go through what is happening, what is going on, what they think should happen next. That must happen. That must happen because that is the only way you can give or decline that consent. When my son was born, he's 23 this year, um, I was given an episiotomy and I shouted, don't cut me, don't cut me, don't cut me. And they just looked at me and said, we have to get your baby out. And they did it. And, yeah. it, you know, it, it, things have changed a lot in the last 20 odd years with regards to episiotomies. I do feel like we've come a long way. That's one of the positive things that's come out for the last yes. few years is that episiotomies are not done routinely. I don't feel traumatized by it in any way, but I can remember at the time just being like, I can't believe they just did that when mm. they when I was telling them no. But. I mean, that is and was then criminal symptomatry. Yeah, absolutely. They're not allowed to do that. No. So before we finish, Emma, I always like to ask my guests the, this same question, which is what top tips can you give to any birth partner listening to 
help them when supporting someone through labour and birth? So, I mean, I'm, I'm quite sure that most people will say um, that they need to be educated themselves because, of course, they do. But we can't learn everything. We None of us can learn everything. You know, I attend births as a doula and learn new things all the time. And so should midwives and doctors. So we can't learn everything, but we do need to have some pretty basic ground knowledge. It's also understanding what your role is legally. So you do have the right to be the advocate for the person who is giving birth for your loved one. You do have the right to say, no, she's actually said this. She actually doesn't want this. Or present their birth plan and say, look, they've written in here very clearly. That's not what they want, no matter what. You can't decide for them because that's the same as a midwife or doctor deciding for them. You don't have the right because it's their body. It's their decision but you absolutely can advocate for them. And so it's understanding that difference. It's understanding that what you're doing is putting across or asserting what they've already said. So let's say she's in the middle of some really heavy duty contractions and she has said to that midwife or doctor, no, I don't want X, Y, Z, episiotomy, a journal examination, whatever it is. Then your role as a birth partner is to make sure that that doesn't happen because you're asserting what she has already said. Mm-hmm. That would be what I would want all birth partners to feel empowered to do. And part of that empowering comes from the fact that they are not taking responsibility for those decisions because it is the woman or person's responsibility for her or their decisions. What you're doing is you're supporting them at a time when they need you to support them. Yeah, and that's really what I'd want all birth partners to, to feel confident doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Where can people find you, Emma? And specifically, where can they buy the book? Okay, so the book is available from the AIMS website under AIMS, A-I-M-S dot org dot UK slash shop. And it's called The AIMS Guide to Your Rights in Pregnancy and Birth. All royalties from the book are donated to AIMS. So you're supporting the charity by buying the book, which is awesome. You can find me on Instagram at Emma underscore Ashworth underscore birth underscore rights. <laughs> it's a very, <laughs> very long and convoluted um, Instagram name, but that's me. I, I post about birth rights on Instagram. And you'll also find on Instagram links to the workshops that I do for parents to be and for birth workers on birth rights lovely thank you so much for your time today it's been amazing talking to you it's been great to be here thank you yeah so much incredible information so thank you so much oh you're welcome it's been good to chat thank you Bye. bye bye Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner with me, Sally Ann Beresford. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and don't forget to hit subscribe. If you are on Instagram, you will find me at The Ultimate Birth Partner. Please feel free to follow me for more ideas on supporting women through the birth of a baby. If you would like to purchase a copy of the book that accompanies this podcast, then head over to Amazon and type in Labour of Love, The Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner. 
If you would like to work with me on a one-to-one -one basis, visit my website www.birthability.co.uk or email me hello at birthability.co.uk.